Welcome to The Garret. I'm Gassan Haj. And I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. The Garret, a podcast by writers, for writers, about writing. Here's your host, Astrid Edwards. Hassan, it is a pleasure to speak with you today. And Randa, welcome back to The Garret. Hassan, you have just released this extraordinary work that I have here before me, The Racial Politics of Australian Multiculturalism. This is a combination of two of your previous works as well as a collection of some other shorter writings. And Randa, you are one of the people that has helped bring this book together. A big question to start with, what was the impetus for you to bring your previous works together? And that is White Nation that originally came out 25 years ago and Against Paranoid Nationalism that came out 20 years ago. Well, it's simply, simply that uh, people are still reading White Nation and Against Paranoid Nationalism and uh, using them in, in their courses uh, around around the world. So I've been, yeah, since, since uh, White Nation ran out of publication, there's been a lot of demand internationally. People telling me sort of like all the copies are very expensive. And I was uh, kind of like talking about it with an international publisher with Rutledge. But then Hamad uh, Ahmad and others sort of like said, the White Nation and your writing means so much to us. Why don't you let us publish this? The idea grew and uh, more and more attractive to me that it's kind of like treated as a bit of an inheritance uh, type publication. It was great from the moment we thought of it till, till it happened. It's been fantastic. Inheritance is a word that comes up a lot. I have been looking at some of the commentary around this publication, and I know it's being launched at Sydney Writers Festival in a few days, so I feel very lucky to be speaking with you right now. The idea of your writings and your body of work as an inheritance, an inheritance you know, within academia, but also within different communities in Australia, and it's very rare. I speak to a lot of writers, and it is very rare to have a writer, a living writer, whose work is associated with that word. And I'd like to interrogate that a little bit. What does it mean for you? And then, Randra, I'm going to ask you for your perspective, for your work to be treated that way and held in that esteem. Well, yes, you know, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. So uh, inheritance is something uh, we, we, we deal with all the time, sort of like and we learn about uh, from the ABC of anthropology. So it, it had given me a lot of sort of like interesting thoughts to say, say, what does it mean that my work is being inherited? Because sometimes people think of inheritance as a one-way traffic uh, thing, where, whereby inheritance means, you know, older generation giving something to a younger generation. But if you treat inheritance as a form of, if you like, a vertical gift exchange, as opposed to horizontal gift exchange, uh, there is a giving, but uh, there is uh, also a receiving. And uh, you feel grateful that you are being inherited. And uh, just as you say to someone who is listening, well, to you, thank you for listening. Uh, you say to someone who treats what you have written as inheritance, you say thank you for inheriting me. But the thank you is because it's quite energizing, really. It's energizing to feel that people are taking your work and still doing things with it. Randa, what are your thoughts on this collection? And I think for the listener, could you also describe the role you and the rest of the members of the reference group played in bringing this publication together? Well, I had the honour of being part of a group of writers who wrote the forward 
to the book. And that was, it was so special because Hassan's work, his body of work has really been probably the most influential sort of work that I have taken on in my own academic life and also my young adult fiction. It's even informed that unconsciously and consciously as well. So it was a great pleasure to be able to to write a forward that really sort of contextualized why this book is still, for obvious reasons, so important. It's kind of bittersweet when you're in the space of anti-racism that books on anti-racism are still important to reflect on that as well, that, you know, you're still doing that work. But I know that things have changed. And for us as Arab Australian, you know, activists and academics and writers, Hassan's voice came out at a time when there wasn't that kind of people to look up to and to aspire to and to be influenced by. The academic scene was so white and it still is. <laughs> but for us, it was there are so many reasons why this is both an intellectual investment for us, but also an emotional and effective one as well that means so much to us. And so I love how Hassan puts that, that inheritance is both ways. It really does feel that We've been gifted with something and and what makes it so much more special for us is that we can do something with that in our own humble way. I mean, it has been incredible for me to be able to, I feel that every time I, I approach a topic or I'm trying to think through something, Hassan's books are usually the books that I find that he's already thought about it in a unique way, in a unique take. And I love that he pushes my thinking on that subject and, and extends it. That is such a beautiful compliment to give, Randa. You all work together to decide what went in. So obviously there are two major texts in here, but the other short form writing, you know, this work, it's essentially a reader. This might be the first collection of texts that, you know, someone who hasn't started reading long form works yet comes to your work, Hassan. What was the intellectual decision behind what went in? I basically chose those texts. I did get some feedback. Some of them, because they they were written like editorial editorializing in the heat of the moment needed different way to contextualize and uh, change certain uh, things especially in relation to Christchurch but uh, on the whole uh, the choice is as as anyone would 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 do this it involves uh, me asking a question what is it that i value that has continuity and that creates a certain sense of continuity with previous works. But also, what do I like to leave the reader with in a period where I feel hope is not exactly the most uh, generously distributed commodity in the world, let me put it this way. I mean, I'm conscious, as as Randa just said, that if you're reading the same anti-racist book 25 years later, it also means that it hasn't done much work <laughs> and so uh, but I mean you have to sort of like yes think what kind of work anti-racist literature does and like it creates at least a community of some form and that's where the inheritance is important because the inheritance is not ethnic or racial I mean the inheritance the people who, who inherit a book like this are people who want to create an alternative community in Australia they are the inheritors it's a political inheritance, neither an ethnic or, or racial. 
just picking up on what Ghassan said, Ghassan in, in, I think it was white nation or maybe against parallel nationalism, you'll have to correct me, talks about sort of this narcissistic kind of belonging at the time of the Cronulla riots and how the fact that the Lebanese beachgoers were there and unapologetically enjoying the beach and not embarrassed by it or as they should be according to the white, you know, manager of that space. Just to give you a sense of why a book like this still resonates, because I remember when we were on email a few months ago, I sent Hassan a video that had been circulating on Instagram of um, a large group of Lebanese beachgoers at Brighton La Sands um, doing the dab care, playing the drums. And it was just like a huge beach party that was just so Lebanese. <laughs> it was just so, so like massive and everyone had different angles of it. And I remember thinking, you know, there is so much there to explore about how much has changed and also how much hasn't in the way that we can look at the way that there would still be people observing that and still feeling the same sense that they felt at the time of Pranala. So it's just to give a sense that works that really tap into, you know, what's happening at that grassroots level, I think all are always going to have that continuity that they live on. And the beauty of it is that they, they can then, you know, come into someone's mind as they're scrolling through Instagram and, you know, light a different kind of light bubble. And I think that's very special about Hassan's work. One of the, the things that attract me a lot about the fact, besides the obvious obvious buzz of hearing Randa saying nice things about me, <laughs> but there's also the fact that I find a lot of continuity between my work and the work of Randa and the work of Muhammad and, and many others who are working with this person. One of them is the fact that when racists devalorize your culture, uh, your instinct is to valorize it. But I was always someone who has made a point of not equating valorizing with lack of critique. So there's this capacity to actually look at the rest and say, yes, our culture is great, but not without stopping stopping the critique there and rather continuing at making sure that one's own community has to be subjected to a massive critique. The second point, very quickly, is there is a critique of whiteness, but there isn't a, a desire not to have a relation with whiteness. There is here a strong relation to create bridges and create different kind of uh, relationality with, with white communities. This work is being published by Sweatshop. And, you know, with the proceeds of this work, you have helped set up two First Nations scholarships with Sweatshop. Again, I speak to a lot of writers, and that is not something that is normally done. Well, I mean, ever since I've been lucky enough uh, financially to be at ease, which which is also associated with uh, my daughters finishing uni and having their own life, I've been making it as a general thing to, wherever I speak in the world, to donate my honorariums. When the publishers offered me money towards the book, I, first of all, I thought, you know, you know, I've published all my life with big academic publishers, you know, Chicago, New York, etc. And they don't pay you this kind of money. I said, I don't want that much money. That's ridiculous. Put it towards your, your organization. And so this, this is how it came. I said, okay, well, we'll find a way of donating it the same way I've been donating it. They, they, sweatshop people came up with this wonderful 
idea of a, of a writing uh, mentorship. And for me, it was really like uh, the icing on the cake uh, as far as publishing uh, with them because I have a very strong sense of inheritance, unreturned gift. When you are living on indigenous land, you are always in a state of having received something which you have not paid. And it's not even a gift in the sense of like they kind of voluntarily. It's a stolen gift that <laughs> that you have to somehow morally negotiate the best way you can. What does it mean to receive a gift that the giver did not give you? And uh, what does it mean to return something given that you're not going to just return the land and say, I'm going back home? I have a great deal of respect for everybody who works with Sweatshop. And I also I have just started a PhD uh, looking at barriers in the publishing industry in Australia, and you are a sociologist, and I would like to ask you a question. What is the role of Sweatshop in the Australian industry? Because it's a strange and very, very white industry. This is part of what I was talking about, about how how do you negotiate whiteness without just being anti, but trying to think a relation. And uh, there's no escaping the super ego of writing being colonized by whiteness. Unless we choose not to write in English and to write uh, in a niche, if we choose to write uh, in English and publish in English, we're writing to a wide, wide, wide audience. So I think Sweatshop seems to be uh, aware of this, as far as I know, I think Randa might be better at uh, replying as at admitting. But I think, from my perspective, what I like about what uh, Sweatshop produces is precisely—it's not just. I always sort of like look at 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 stories and think, "Wow, great stories!" It's it's not just that they're great stories, but it's so great that there is actually someone capable of writing these stories uh, because they don't try it themselves. You know, when someone uh, makes it in boxing, uh, like uh, Muhajir, and uh, sort of like she's a kickboxer, and she, she's a lesbian, she makes up with her family, uh, sort of like makes up with her family by becoming a brilliant boxer despite the fact she's lesbian. I mean, usually you hear this story, but you wouldn't hear that the person who has this experience is capable of writing. And that's what I find uh, really great. Yeah, I think with Sweatshop, like as someone who has, who started publishing um, with white publishers and mainstream establishment publishers, the beauty about Sweatshop is that it's at least a space where you can develop your own voice. You can develop sort of your, that self-determination to be able to write without thinking about the double bind of writing for a white audience, for a mainstream audience, and all those constraints which definitely impact on your creativity. So at least it provides a space where you have mentors and you can just learn how to write, you know, to actually play around and experiment with voice and audience before you're thrown into negotiating that voice for the white establishment because it's not just the publishers, there's also the reviewers. There's a whole industry there that you have to start facing and it takes a lot of work to try and negotiate all those demands on you whilst being true to to the story that you want to tell. There is so much. I mean, it's the publishers, the editors, how it's sold and packaged, then final readers as well. I'd like to go back, Hassan, to something you said a little bit earlier. You kind of made an offhand joke about if a work has to be reissued 
you know, 25 years later, you know, maybe it didn't change anything. In Australia, there have been quite a few quite important works that have reached a a good milestone, a wonderful milestone, and have been brought back into print or or reissued. I'm thinking of Talking Up to the White Woman by Eileen Morton Robinson. I'm thinking about Am I Black Enough for You by Anita Heiss. I'm thinking about Sister Girl by Jackie Huggins and others that have reached, you know, 10, 20, 25-year milestones. With your vantage point, how do you feel about the need for these things to be reissued? And what are your observations on what has changed? Yes, I mean, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting that most of the books you mentioned are indigenous. That's an interesting thing. That's one of the main interesting points that have changed. And I haven't accompanied the change uh, in the sense of like I've been writing on different issues. But uh, when I wrote White Nation, it was very clear in radical circles that if you're writing on multiculturalism, you don't include indigenous cultures in multicultural because it's just like, like making indigenous cultures yet another culture that you can be multi about. There was a thing about making for the specificity of the colonial racism and the colonial encounter uh, and that it is very different from the kind of racism that ethnic immigrants have been uh, subjected to. And I think one of the interesting things that definitely uh, you can see uh, an incredible rise in indigenous writing in the last uh, 25 years that has had a massive impact on uh, the public way in which uh, indigenous Australian cultures are uh, circulating among non-indigenous people. But at the same time, if we are talking, I mean, here, like the voice, is, is here, the debates about the voice are happening. I mean, one of the things like that I strongly argued for in White Nation is precisely the fact that, I mean, not in relation to the voice, but when you have something advocating precisely an indigenous voice, the non-indigenous voices should dim themselves a little bit. I mean, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have an opinion, but I'd like, I'd like myself, if there's an ethic of not speaking too loudly if you're not indigenous. I mean, it's just a kind of like a know-how of learning how to participate without fronting yourself and centering yourself. And so, like, that's not happening. Like, all around me, sort of like uh, colleagues, white people, uh, non-indigenous people, with great positions for the voice or whatever, you might agree 100% with them, but you still feel that's not your voice that I want to hear here. Like, well, you shouldn't let your voice dominate uh, the conversation. So this critique of white-centeredness that was initiated, I don't think it has gone far enough. I was, I was listening to some English people last week and so, so like we were talking about uh, various things and, and they were saying to me sort of like how wonderful that Britain has, even though they don't agree with the politics of the Conservative Party, but they think it's wonderful that the Prime Minister and some of the ministers are, are people of colour. But then I realised that actually what they were telling me, isn't it great that we English people are capable of having non-white prime minister. And so the, the imaginary of the English we 
even though the prime minister is not white, etc., was still a white imaginary. And this, this gives you a sense of the depth of where I think we haven't managed to really undermine that white imaginary of the Australian waiting. When we start thinking, not we have multiculturalism, because as soon as you use the word have, you're making it a possession and you're clearing the we and making it a white way. There is so much work more to do. You have made an impact though. Earlier this week, I interviewed Omar Seika about his latest poetry collection, Non-Essential Work. And in that collection, he dedicates a poem to you. Hassan, have you read the poem? I'm not sure which one is that. It's specifically dedicated to you and it's called For a Country That Cannot Keep Its Children. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, thanks, yes. <laughs> I asked Omar what influence your work has had on, on his work and his thinking and his poetry. And he gave a really eloquent answer. Your work has dramatically expanded his world through the ability to see clearly how power functions. I thought it was, you know, I wasn't expecting to see the work of an anthropologist and a sociologist in a poetry collection. And it was a reminder that all forms of literature, are, all forms of communication are making changes in people uh, internally and, and giving people emotional responses. And my final question to you really is about this for both of you. What is the nexus between academia and literature and art and how we can reach people, but also engage with the work and, and be reached by others? Can I say something very cheeky? <laughs> My favourite work from Hassan is not in that collection. It's called Alter Politics. <laughs> it came out in 2015, I think, and it had an absolutely profound impact on me at a time when I was completely confused about who I was. Was I an aspiring academic? Was I a writer? Was I an activist? And nobody was able to really satisfactorily give me a sense of how to merge all of those in a way that didn't make me feel I had to choose one. And it was Hassan's work that really brought the idea that you can have political passion in a way that brings the, the alter politics, the anti, where, the world where it, there's the logic of enemy friend, which is the activist world, <laughs> which I was trying to reconcile with my writing where I feel I write from a position of extreme compassion and humanity for my reader that I want them to step into a world where I am okay explaining things and I don't need them to have a degree in anti-racism and critical race theory, you know, and then the academic where I want to just sit and think and, and be critical in a way that I can not necessarily take a position. I can sit in something that might, you know, be you know a level of discomfort. And it was really Ghassan's work that made me understand that political passion is everywhere and that you don't need to make those choices. And I think once you have political passion, then these kinds of artificial boundaries don't matter anymore. They're there and you can just sink into them in, in a way that feels right. I think I'm, I'm really enjoying this interview. Can we, can we extend it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's interesting, though, as an academic, one of the things you learn as a teacher is uh, how to speak to a multiplicity of audience. You immediately realize that uh, students have various degrees of theoretical sophistication, various degrees of, of historical background that may help them understand the class background. 
and either sort of like direct your attention to people who you feel you want to talk to or you learn how to speak in such a way that your work has the potentiality of being taken by an audience, by another audience differently, by another audience differently. I've often reflected on this. What the, how, how do we develop this skill of writing and becoming more and more conscious that I'm writing the sentence, but one reader will understand this, but one type of reader will take that from it and one type of reader will take something else. And so, yeah, it's the art of speaking to multiplicity, which I, I find always nice in the writings that my colleagues, Randers definitely is a prime example of how this writing to multiplicity uh, work. Because where there's failure is when you have a totally mono, mono conceptualization of the people you are having a relationship uh, with in your writing and speaking. This is the first time I have spoken with you, Hassan, and you you are a beautiful conversationalist and your words, I wish I could speak to you all day, actually. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, I hope we will get to meet uh, at some point. Thank you both for your time today. The Garrett is produced by Bad Producer Productions. Subscribe to The Garrett on all good podcast apps and read the transcripts of our interviews at thegarrettpodcast.com.